0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Have you ever said sorry without meaning it? Let's start with our children first. When you're trying to teach your children how to get along with others and when relationships are hurt or when someone perhaps takes matters in their own hand and you have to teach Bobby to apologize to Susie. (laughs) Or maybe Susie needs to apologize to Bobby, but in either case, you have to grab them by the hand and you have to bring them to their sibling and say, say you're sorry, sorry. (laughs) Tell them why you're sorry, because mom said I had to. Then you have to explain that. How many of you know it doesn't get any easier as adults, right? When was the last time you apologized to someone? And if you're being honest with yourself, you didn't really mean it. We're in the peculiar part of our story in Acts chapter 5. Because Peter and John are put in a position... Where the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, is really just, they want an apology. They want a sincere apology for the chaos that they've wreaked havoc on in the community. And so the, standing, the standoff between the ruling council for the Jewish people and Peter reaches kind of a boiling point in Acts chapter 5, our text today. So today we examine this strength on multiple fronts. Peter is face to face with the Sanhedrin, the ruling party, and they are livid because he has the audacity of disobeying them multiple times. He continues to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which the Sanhedrin do not ascribe to, and because they've continued, the disciples have stopped counting how many followers there are, because it grows in such uh, such amazing uh, sequence. And Peter's response is almost as if he says, "Well, sorry. I'm really sorry." We're going to examine first the strong testimony of the apostles. So if you have your Bibles or the Bible app, go to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is what we read. We're picking it up a little bit from last week. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 says this, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Verse 30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted Him, Jesus, at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. verse 32, He says this, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. We talked about this last week, but in contrast to the Sanhedrin, who were more concerned about man's opinion than God's opinion, this was a testimony of great boldness. The apostles' response to the council was not a defense. It was not a plea for mercy. It was just a simple explanation of their actions. And so in general, the New New Testament teaches us that we should submit to those in authority over us. Yet, this submission on the human level is really never absolute and never is more important than submission to God. And so right here we have this case where although they have been taught, uh, even by Jesus as early as Matthew chapter 5, that they should uh, obey the authorities that God has placed in our life, including the government, including politicians, including officials. But here we see a direct conflict between their obedience to God and their submission to the authority above them. Now, we want to be very clear what the Sanhedrin were asking them to do. Because every single day, you and I submit to the authorities that are above us. Uh, When I uh, I go out driving, most of the time, I submit to the authority (laughs) above us. Sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes it's on accident. (laughs) I'm trying to be honest here. But most of the time when we go out and about, we we submit to the authorities above us. Um, uh, We all pay taxes. Uh, Those taxes are used for things that we necessarily don't agree with. Am I right? But we still pay those taxes. Um, So when we are talking about Uh, disobeying the authorities that are above us, let's be absolutely clear, the example given in Scripture has nothing to do with the Peter's and John's and the disciples' preferences. It had everything to do with their principles. And the two are not the same. What it came down to was this. They asked them to stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ a, a few months after seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was just a few months ago that they had a meal with Jesus days after he was resurrected. They had seen it with their own eyes. Verse 32 says, we are witnesses of this. And the Sanhedrin said, if you keep preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're gonna threaten you, we're gonna do these other things to you, we really just need you to apologize and stop doing these things. So the example in scripture of the disciples uh, disobeying the government or disobeying the authority in their life had nothing to do with their preferences, but had everything to do with their ability to be true to the witness of what they saw. What I'm saying is we don't, to, uh, we don't get to take our preference and then simply act on those preferences as if it's equal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The example in Scripture is this, we should submit to those in authority above us, but it's never more important than our submission to God. This was a reliable testimony because it was based on eyewitnesses who, con- who was confirmed by God. So uh, an eyewitness, you may want to write this in your notes, an eyewitness is a person who has personally seen something happen and so can give a first-hand description of it. So in a legal proceeding, if there's a witness, it's Someone who's on the stand and they are going to testify as to their, uh, what they saw, what they heard personally. And so these men and women, these eyewitnesses of the early church here in Acts chapter 5 are simply declaring what they have seen and what they have heard. We talked about this last week with regard to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. What are you an eyewitness of when it comes to the Holy Spirit? What have you seen in terms of God working in your life? What relationships have you seen restored? Have you, what have you seen uh, that was once dead? Maybe there was, uh, there was a, re- a relationship that was dead and now it's come alive. Maybe there was hope that was gone and now it's come alive. What are you a witness of? You see, when our faith is threatened, we don't need a defense necessarily. We don't need a plea for mercy. We simply need to be, like these disciples, an eyewitness. So we see this uh, amazingly strong testimony of the apostles, and now we see the strong reaction from the council. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 5, and verse 33. When they heard this, that's everything Peter and John just said, the fact that um, we're going to obey God, not you, You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. He has exalted him, put him at the right hand of Jesus. Uh, And so we are an eyewitness of, of this, and we will continue to be eyewitnesses of this. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Enraged, Peter and apostles had clearly and briefly explained to them who Jesus was, what he did on the cross, and how we should respond and so Luke graphically describes this word enraged. This is the word that would mean this. Their hearts were sawn in two. They were this angry. They were this enraged. They were this furious. They were, uh, they were thinking in their mind, who are you to tell us to repent? We don't need this forgiveness. Don't blame us for the death of Jesus. Don't you know who we are? They were enraged. And they wanted to kill him. And so right then the death of the apostles are set in motion. We had not previously read that they wanted to kill them. But now it is clear. They were unable to contend with the disciples on the level of truth. And so now they resorted to authority and force. So listen to the pattern that the ruling class had for the disciples. First they were going to threaten them. Next they were going to arrest them. Third, they're going to beat them. We're going to see that here shortly. And fourth, ultimately, they wanted to kill him. We're going to threaten you. We're going to arrest you. We're going to beat you. And then if you still don't comply, we're going to kill you. Uh, Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what they did to Jesus. Numerous times in the gospel, you saw him being threatened. We see uh, the night of the Last Supper, he's arrested. We'll see the narrative as we read and studied. When we looked at Easter, we saw how that he was beaten, and then ultimately they killed him. They had done this before. And they thought, if we could threaten these disciples, these followers of Jesus Christ, with the same type of actions... Maybe it, they will save themselves and they'll comply. They'll submit to us. They threatened him. They arrested him. We'll beat him and then we'll kill him. They intended to do the same things to them as they did with Jesus, but they were given advice from someone named Gamaliel. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse thirty-four and verse thirty-five says this: A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. A teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. I want to just spend a couple of moments on some historical context on who this Gamaliel is. Uh, This was most likely the grandson of the esteemed Hillel. In Jewish culture, Hillel was the founder of Israel's strongest school of religion. Gamaliel was given the title of Rabban, um, which means our teacher, which is a step above a rabbi. There were only seven individuals uh, who earned this title, and significantly, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. And so the Sadducees had all the political power... But it would have been foolishly, uh, it would have been politically foolish for them to ask the Romans to execute these apostles without the support from the Pharisees. We'll we'll speak a little bit more about Gamaliel when we read about Saul who turned to Paul in a few chapters. But let's keep reading the narrative here. Verse 36 says this. Well, verse 35, he said, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. Verse 36. For before these days, Thudis rode up. Everyone say Thudis. So now he's about to give some examples of people who have caused an uproar in the past and how they were handled before. So he says this: Thudis rode up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him was were dispersed, and it came to nothing. He basically says there was this guy. He claimed to be somebody. Uh, He died, his followers dispersed, the followers never picked up his uh, cause, and that uh, threat to us dissipated really quick, verse 36. Uh, Verse 37, I should say, uh, after him, Judas, everyone say Judas, this is the different Judas, it's Judas the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered." In other words, what Gamaliel is saying is this, man, do not give these guys this amount of attention. This has happened before. Remember with Thutis, we, we, uh, we threatened him. When he died, the followers scattered. And we never heard about this movement again. Judas the Galilee tried to threaten our, uh, our uh, status quo. And when he died, again, they were scattered. If we pay them too much attention we validate them. If we pay them too much attend- attention, we will give them uh, an audience. And so he says, don't legitimize them. Their passion will pass with each day. Let it happen like we've had, let it happen before. Now, here's the thing. The difference between Thutis, Judas, and the disciples was the Holy Spirit of God. Right? Thutis and Judas, they were never to be heard of again, uh, the followers of Jesus Christ about to turn the world upside down because of the Holy Spirit of God. That's one of the uh, elements that Gamaliel didn't recognize, but he goes on with his advice in verse 38. He says this, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone for this plan or this undertaking is of man, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. In other words, let this movement fizzle out. Let it happen on its own. Uh, don't take matters in your own hands. Allow it to run its course. What we see here is this. Um, let's actually go to the next verse. Uh, verse 39 is, says this. If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So he says, if it's of man, it's going to fizzle out. If it's of God, good luck. You're not going to be able to overcome them. Um, Gamaliel is what you call a fence sitter. Right? He's hedging his bets on both sides. He's saying, you just stay away from these guys. You don't want to be their enemy. Just let this happen on its own. If it fizzles out, it was never a threat. If God is in it, you don't want to be against it anyway. He spoke as if they should wait and see if Jesus and the apostles were really from God. But what greater testimony did he need beyond the resurrection and the apostles' miracle? He just kind of took this wait-and-see attitude until there was more evidence. He says this, if it's of God, verse 39, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even find, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, on the surface, this is pretty good advice. Gamaliel is being a wise counselor as he is known to be, and his word carried weight, and so they did take this wait-and-see attitude. Look at verse 40 again. He says, they called in the apostles. They had sent them out, remember? They're discussing what to do. They called them out, and they beat them. Charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When was the last time you were in a fist fight? <laughs> yesterday? Anybody yesterday? <laughs> um, the closest I ever got to a fist fight, I was in the second grade. Uh, and no fists were actually ever thrown. Um, I was in the second grade and it was at recess. Recess. Um, I don't know how many recesses you guys get in school now, but in the second grade, we had like a 15-minute recess, like after probably a couple of hours, and then later we'd have lunch recess, right? So this was in the first recess. And I do not remember why I got so mad at Ryan Ramirez, but I did. He probably talked bad of the Lakers, if we're being honest. (laughs) And I probably just could not handle my seven-year-old self. And I really don't remember, I wish I could remember how we got to just standing at each other, ready. Uh, actually, we were playing marbles because I know where I was standing. We were standing in the area we would be playing marbles. So something might have happened with the game. But I, and Ryan Ramirez and I were friends. We were really good friends. Um, he's a, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, education, uh, I want to say he's a uh, principal or an assistant principal now in Southern California. My sister ran into him a couple of years ago, which was great. So we've emailed a couple of times since. So everything happened. Everything was fine after, uh, but something happened and we, and I remember with my fists clenched and they were probably like this and we just stared at each other and I started crying. That's all I remember. And then I think he started crying, and recess was over. And by lunchtime, I was splitting my peanut butter and jelly sandwich with him. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> we read this story, and it says when they called the apostles, they beat them. And if we're not careful, we'll let that phrase just pass us by. I want to unpack what this phrase means, they beat them. We think maybe it was a, a black eye or two. We think maybe perhaps um, we think of like a hockey fight maybe or a baseball dugout clearing brawl. In your notes there, and I don't mean to be graphic this morning, but I think it's important to the text, beaten can also be translated skinned. The beating they received stripped the skin off their back. This was not a soft option. They didn't get off easy. It was brutal. Your scriptures, depending on your translation, might use the word flogged or flogging. We're talking about a rod that has nine leather straps attached to it with pieces of glass or bone. In my study, I realized or I found that um, they would typically use the knuckles of the bones of a sheep, the bones of the knuckle of a sheep. If you've ever seen the bones, uh, the knuckle bones of a deer, apparently uh, they're very similar. The deer's obviously a little bit larger, but I've been told they're identical otherwise. So the bones and the pieces of glass were designed to embed themselves into the skin. So in Jewish culture, they would call this the cat of nine tails. And in Jewish culture, you would only be allowed to punish someone. Uh, 40 times save one, Deuteronomy calls it, 39 times. It was thought that if you went to 40, uh, you, would, you would kill a man. According to theologians and historians, 55% of the time, they did kill him with 39 lashes. Because of complications that came from the beating. They would whip their backs And as the uh, bones and the glass would penetrate the skin, it would catch. And so they would use the same type of force as they did when they administered the whip as they would to remove the whip, and that's how their backs would be skinned. The skin would just rip off. Because of Gamaliel's rationale, because it was a compromised reach that they were to be beat, and then let go, I don't want us to get this picture in our mind that they were let off easy. The punishment was intended to administer pain and dishonor, and it led to both suffering and that pain. It's interesting because the suffering and even the death of disciples like that of Jesus didn't lead to the squelching of the Jesus movement, It led to its success success and its expansion. We're a couple of weeks away from seeing the next phase of Acts. We're still in the portion where we're seeing the church start. Here uh, next week, we're going to see this amazing story in Acts chapter 6 about uh, how some of the people were not being attended to and how the church kind of organized themselves. But right after that, what we see next is the church starting to scatter. And as it scatters to different regions... This type of behavior where they were beat for their beliefs, where they were persecuted physically for their beliefs, did not squelch the Jesus movement. In fact, it led to its success and its expansion. In your notes, we notice next the apostle's strong perspective on persecution. Verse 41 says this. This is after they were beat, after they were released, They left the presence of the council. What's that next word? Say it again. It's an odd time to rejoice, isn't it? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Church, the the leaders thought they could intimidate and discourage the apostles with a beating. Instead... They left rejoicing. In your notes, they were not rejoicing that they suffered, but that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It was a privilege to be associated with Jesus in any circumstance, even to suffer shame. It's amazing how much of our life... We spend avoiding suffering. How much of our life we try to avoid the hard moments? Libby and I were uh, talking on Saturday morning over breakfast, and we were talking about some things in our life. Um, and I found myself saying, Well, this would be easier than this situation. And Libby said, Is, is that our goal? just to do what's easy. They were not rejoicing that they suffered. The point is not to go out and just to get in a fist fight for the fist fight's sake, but they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Read on, verse 41. Every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is an amazing testimony. You think about what is the disciples have endured in these five chapters we've looked at so far. No doubt there was an easy out several times along the way. But they had seen too much already. They had seen their Savior die on a cross. They had seen him buried. And perhaps with confusion and perhaps with some uh, trepidation inside, perhaps with some uneasiness, not understanding. Like the kingdom of God must not have made sense in that moment when Jesus was buried. And so for one day, for two days, three days, they endured the pain and perhaps the disappointment and the confusion. And then all of a sudden, they get word from Mary and the other women who were chosen to release this news on Jesus' behalf, on the angel's behalf, that Jesus is alive. So you think about the roller coaster events for the disciples of going through that and now finding out that Jesus is alive and now. Having a meal with Jesus, and they're walking down uh, the Emmaus Road, and then Jesus reveals himself to them, and they, and they finally say, Is this the time that the kingdom of God will now go forward? And Jesus says, Not quite yet. Wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. The Holy Spirit's gonna come, and then you can move forward. So they They're there, and they're standing, and and they see Jesus ascend. And if you're like like the disciples, you're probably going to hang out there for a while. (laughs) He said he'd be back. I I just make, I don't want to miss it, right? I'm just going to stay right here, and I I don't want to miss it. And the angels came and said, all right, why stand gazing? You ought to go to Jerusalem. Remember what he said? Go to Jerusalem and wait there. So they go to Jerusalem, and that walk from wherever they were for Jesus' ascension to the room they were hanging out in Jerusalem, that must have been an incredible walk. Those disciples are probably just talking to each other and say, what's, Can you believe what's next? Like, the kingdom is coming. He said he'd be back. and He said he'd be soon. And so we're going to go wait. And when the Holy Spirit comes, whatever that is, then we have the kingdom. So they go to the upper room, and then we read Acts chapter 2. And it's amazing. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, right? And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, Peter and the others start getting up, and they just start preaching and teaching in languages they haven't understood, languages they've never been taught. And everyone that came to Jerusalem from the Feast of the Pentecost, everyone that came to Jerusalem from all parts of uh, the known Roman Empire that were Jews, but they had to be uh, scattered due, uh, through the course of history, and, and now they're returning back for this feast. All of them start hearing the gospel, not in the Jewish tongue, which would have been fine, because they knew Jew, Jew the Jewish language. they knew Hebrew, but now they're hearing it in their own language. And they're probably thinking, "Oh, so this is the kingdom." This is the kingdom. And the next day, uh, Peter gets up and he he preaches a message and then 3,000 people are being saved. And then the next day, Peter and John go to the temple and there's this guy who's lame. And Peter's like, why not? The Holy Spirit is moving. And he has that man be healed. And that's like the domino effect for where we're at in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42. That starts this this unbelievable sequence of events where the Sanhedrin and and now the the, the, the ruling party and the military are all on, on, on high alert. Whatever the DEFCON level needed to be switched to, it had been switched to. Now they're like, we have a situation on our hand. We didn't have this many followers before when Jesus was alive, and all of a sudden they're coming out of the woodwork. We need to address this. So they arrest him, and then they're released right away in the and, and and the church, the early church, when Peter and John told them that they had been released, the early church says, we're going to pray for more boldness. We're going to pray for more boldness so that we can all uh, teach and preach and see these signs and these wonders. And so they get released again, and then Peter preaches again, and it's the same message as before, and then and now there must be feeling, this is what it's like to be a part of the kingdom. We get arrested, we get released. A, blind, a guy's there and he needs to be healed, all of a sudden he's healed. Thousands of people are being followers to Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom. And this time the arrest doesn't go the same. In fact, this time, they're skinned. And when they're released, they rejoice that they're counted to suffer for the name of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the kingdom. We preach and teach the name of Jesus. And if circumstance warrants that we suffer, that we're persecuted in Jesus' name, we say thank you, Jesus, that I'm able to suffer in Your name. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. I don't normally include a quote of this size in your notes, but but Spurgeon said these words um, in the mid to late 1800s that I think are profound for us this morning. Watch your toes. Because he says this, you are a coward. Yes, put it down in English, you are a coward. If anybody called you so you would turn red in the face and perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject, what a shameful thing it is that while you are at bold at everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. Now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in Christ's name, according as he has apparently and especially to take care of this tendency of our flesh to be afraid, which leads practically to endeavors to get off easily and to save ourselves from trouble. Fear not, be brave for Christ, live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. Charles Spurgeon. So this morning as we take a few moments to kind of wrestle with the tension of the text that we've just read and perhaps the words from an old preacher in the mid-1800s, I ask you this, what does living bravely for him who died lovingly for you look like today? What does living bravely for Jesus look like today? Because make no mistake, the chances of you and I being arrested for our faith is small. And so while you and I could say, well, I, I, I would get arrested for Jesus, uh, perhaps our day will come to that, and depending on which news outlet you watch, you might think we're closer than others. And maybe we will get to that point, but in the meantime, we will likely not have to repeat the events of Acts chapter 5 in our lifetime. So what does living bravely look like In your life? I asked this question on social media this week, and many of you spoke up with some beautiful words, so um, you all will help close today's message. Ethan Kane said this living bravely looks like this stepping up and into your gifts instead of running from them, no matter how much you feel that you aren't worthy of them. Boy, what does it look like for you to step up? Into your gifts, instead of running from them. There is something in you that God has gifted you in, and whatever it looks like, uh, perhaps there's some of you who have just been hiding that. You have the ability to uh, to teach. You have the ability. Uh, you're a social media whiz when it comes to you and your business, uh, but. But for some reason you haven't uh, let that part out at church. Uh, Maybe you are really good at networking and you can connect people based on their talents and their gifts. And and you're extremely gifted at that. Maybe maybe you're really good at making friends and you've never met a stranger. And every time you're around someone you become their friend and, and maybe that's it. What is in you, what is the gift in you that you have found yourself running from when it comes to your faith? Cheryl Kane said this, being willing to follow the Spirit in whatever He calls you to do, even if it's scary. Being willing to follow the Spirit. Um, to follow the Spirit, that means we have to listen to the Spirit. And to listen to the Spirit needs, means that we need to stop talking and embrace the silence as we come before a holy God. Like, what would it look like to silence the noise around you so you could hear the Spirit of God? Yeah, to hear the Spirit of God, you need to listen. Diane Murphy said this, submitting uh, to the Holy Spirit and trusting he will guide your way. Maybe some of you are like me and you're like, well, if we go down this way, then uh, this path opens up. And if we go down this way, this path opens up. And what I need to constantly do to live bravely in this word is to say, those are my options. What is God asking me to consider? What's the path? Because I'm looking at it from this way and, and this way perhaps, and God might be looking at it this way. Right? My mother-in-law, Sarah, said this, you live as he wants you to live, even if it makes others uncomfortable. Yeah, some of us are making... (laughs) I won't say that. Um, Some of us are really... uh, live our life really easy to make people uncomfortable on everything but our faith. We like to make people uncomfortable with our politics. We like to make people uncomfortable with our opinions. But when it comes to our faith, for some reason, that's, that's private. Dean Soper said this, Living bravely means not being afraid to show your faith. Uh, one of my friends up in uh, Turner, Oregon, Casey Holmes, said this, It means living bravely means going out of your way to be kind and compassionate to someone in your neighborhood. Another friend in uh, Eugene said this, Becca Fitch said this, One thing for sure, living bravely for Jesus requires that we put ourselves in a position of listening to him first. Yeah, we gotta, we got to figure out what it means for us to, to just listen to the Holy Spirit. And as he speaks, we simply respond. Uh, one of our missionaries, Donna Stroop, said this, just do it scared. <laughs> Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is asking you to do, do it scared. Just do it. Just be obedient. Steve Wicker uh, said that he has these cards that are made up and he uses them when he invites people to church and they have his name and his phone number so that he can, uh, if you want one, I have one. I just got That's one. Just an example. And, uh, and it has a, yeah, it has his name and it has the church's address and the, and the website and uh, it makes it easy for him to make that connection. On the back he has a, a Bible verse. What does it look like for you to live bravely? Uh, To hand someone your name with a Bible verse on it? For some of you, that would be pretty brave. I think it's awesome that the verse he uses is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to plaster your back of your car with 28 bumper stickers. I like reading them all, by the way, so... Go ahead and do so. I'm not asking you to go out and to hold a sign. What I'm asking you to do is to think: What does it look like to live bravely? Because to drive around with a car with a bumper sticker may not, or may not be brave for some of us. But inviting someone to lunch and simply just say, um, "How are you? How are you doing with with the loss in your family? I know you're going through a divorce. I just I wanted you to know that I love you and I'm I'm here for you." What does it look like to live bravely? Because, see, church is not a place we attend. It's a people that we are. Amen. And as we read through the book of Acts, it can be easy for us to read through Acts and simply read it from a, a spectator point of view. My youth pastor, when I was a, a teenager, Brother Beigel, said this. Brother West Beigel, he pastors in Texas now. First of all, he complimented all of you guys who commented. He said, he, he's like, you have a very wise church family, Daniel. And then he said this, so much of the Christian life is doing what we deep down know we should do when we're prompted by the Holy Spirit, even when we do not want to and it's difficult for us. He said this, which is so profound, we grow stronger when we embrace the struggle and fight, but we grow weaker and more cowardly when we don't. We grow stronger when we embrace the struggle and fight. We grow weaker and more cowardly when we don't. Here's the thing. You have a choice. You get to choose from Acts chapter 5, verse 29 to 42. You get to choose who you are. You can be Peter and John and the disciples, or you can be Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the fence sitter. Gamaliel was the one who said, well, we could go either way. It just kind of depends on... on on what kind of evidence we see. Gamaliel was the one who wanted to uh, take the test of time and say, uh, we're just going to wait this out. And yet, way more important than the test of time is the test of eternity. And where Gamaliel who had studied the scriptures, who had knew it as a boy, who was a rabban, not a rabbi, a rabban, who was later uh, his most prized pupil was Saul, who would become Paul. Uh, Gamaliel, who could have influenced these people and who could have uh, influenced the Sanhedrin and the ruling party. Gamaliel, who knew the scriptures from a baby, just sat on the fence and said, I don't know, man, we can go either way on this. In fact, let's, just, let's let them reveal their faith. And you have the opportunity this morning, and you can say, you can be like the, the disciples and say, we must rather obey God than man. We are witnesses of what we've seen. I've seen Jesus work in my life. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen my kids have hope for the future. I've seen in my own life the restoration that he brings. I am a witness of what Jesus has done. You can do that. Or you can be Gamaliel and simply say, I don't know, man, we'll see. Everyone else live out their faith and we're just going to we 'll just wait and see, and you will wait and see long enough until you are simply out of the faith it's an amazing, strong testimony of the apostles, boy. they came to them and they simply said, "We know what you'd like us to do, we know that you want an apology, but man, we must rather apo- uh, follow God than man. there's no way we can turn back. We have seen." The goodness of God in our life. And the reaction from the council, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them, and they were talked out of it, and they were beaten. They were, boy, they were persecuted. They were skinned in that moment. And they went home rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer shame on behalf of Jesus' name. Today is the choice for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You can go through life intellectually uh, astute, educated in church all your life, and your faith simply amount to, I don't know, man, we're just going to see how this plays out. Or you can say, my goodness, when I look at my life, I am a witness. I have seen the goodness of God. And because I have done so, I count it an honor to be worthy to suffer shame on his name. And so I will obey God rather than man. Let me pray for you this morning. Dear God, as we consider this event in Acts chapter 5, we are humbled to be, Father, I am humbled to be called a Christian in the same manner that these disciples were. These who were tortured for their faith. Who were beaten, who were skinned alive. And even in that moment of persecution, they rejoiced as they went home because they were worthy to be suffering in the name of Jesus. It's an honor to be a Christian with these followers of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I I, I fear for my own life that there are moments and times. Where I, um, as Ethan was saying, I run away from my gifts and I keep those hidden because I'm scared. There's a fear in me of what if I lose this relationship or what if I lose this friendship or what if someone sees me do this right now or I'm, I'm, I'm at risk of losing something that in the end is so temporary on what we might gain And so, Father, I pray that you would allow these words to find a resting spot in our heart, that we would consider how we want to live out our faith. Father, we are all witnesses of what you've done in our life. We are witnesses of the goodness of God in our life. And yet, Father, there's a choice for us to make. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to simply live out our faith as these followers did. That we would live bravely as Spurgeon reminded us. That we would not fear not. I'm sorry, that we would fear not and we would simply be brave for you. Father, I pray that we would resist the urge to be on the fence as Gamaliel was that we would resist the urge to be on the sidelines when it comes to our faith. But however you are leading us in this moment, as our missionary reminded us that we would do it scared. We are in awe of your goodness and our grace in our life, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that we would respond in according to the mercy that you have shown us thank you so much for listening to this week's message if you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family we would love to connect with you you can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.